Welcome to Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth, a series of conversations about the life and teachings of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is considered to be one of the most important Catholic intellectuals and writers of the 20th century. Incredibly prolific and diverse, he wrote over 100 books. He is also co-founder with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of the acclaimed theological journal, Communio. It is the purpose of this series of programs to introduce some of the themes of Balthasar's work, and perhaps to help some understand better why Hans Urs von Balthasar is so important for modern theology and for the lived experience of the Church today. Balthasar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We continue with part two of our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp discussing Hans Urs von Balthasar's Love Alone is Credible. This book that, I, if I'm not mistaken, was originally published in 1963. Yeah. He's writing about the importance of coming to know more fully those theologians who did theology on their knees, St. Augustine, St. Bernard, St. John of the Cross, who, as you said, John Paul wrote his dissertation, The Passion According to John of the Cross, yeah. and Therese, and so many others that Pope Benedict XVI would talk in a series of audiences beginning in August of 2010 all the way to the end of the year, where he brought up women, essentially from Hildegard's age until about Teresa of Avila, and even included Therese, that he said they were essentially put aside for centuries in some cases, their mystical experiences, their experiences in prayer, that there is something about them that is so needed in the church. He said modern theology is missing when they don't look towards these women and the message that they have to offer. Absolutely true. I was just writing in my blog about this, and it's really essentially about holiness in the church and whatnot. But one of the things I, I note in there is that Balthazar develops uh, two principles for what structure the church, and he calls them the Petrine parent principle and the Marian principle. I'm sure you're familiar with this. The Petrine principle is, of course, the skeletal structure of the church, the institutional church, the hierarchy, the magisterium, the pope, all that stuff. And he says that's absolutely necessary. You have to have that. Otherwise, the church is just a blob of competing spiritualities. So it's got to have that regulative Petrine function. But all of that is ultimately completely pointless and will be rendered into an ideological superstructure, which actually eventually happens in some ways. It'll be rendered into an ideological superstructure devoid of spirit unless that second principle of the church is there, the Marian principle, which is the superior principle. It's the principle of interior holiness, which is why Balthazar always said the heart of the church are her contemplatives, her monastic contemplatives. And we all have to enter into this Marian subjectivity. I had an article in Comunio, I think it was in 1996. It was a chapter out of my dissertation that talked about the Marian subjectivity of the church. Uh, and, and this subjectivity is something that we have to enter into. And I think that a lot of the female saints and mystics in the church have tapped into that Marian dimension of the church for reasons that are probably obvious, you know, that they tap into that Marian dimension of the church in ways that are far superior to, to, the, to the male 
sort of theologians and writers in the history of the church. And so, yeah, I agree. We need to retrieve this entire, and, and a lot of theologians have, Louis Bouillet and others have written beautifully on the, the women mystics in the church, but it's not just even the mystics. Uh, I, I would say we need, we need the insights also, and I think this is often neglected, of mothers mm-hmm. of the spirit. Uh, uh, one of the things that has most surprised me about my, my blog is I have all of these former students of mine from DeSales University who are uh, now, they went from being young women to wives and mothers. And many of them are stay-at-home moms because they're very traditional and stuff. They've got like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine kids. All right. So they're very traditional and all that. And one of the things that they have said to me was that they feel a bit neglected in terms of their peculiar gift to the church in terms, not just in terms of motherhood, but the spirituality that evolves out of their insights as mothers. I'm sure you can speak to this uh, very, very uh, deeply. Uh, I I think, not to get too far off topic, but we are talking about the role of of women in the church. Uh, When I was a young boy, I had a sister who was born with a congenital heart defect, and she was extremely sick. For, her, for five or six years of her life, which as long as her life lasted. And then she had surgery and she did not survive for long after the surgery and she died. Now, obviously this was extremely devastating to all of us. Uh, but one of the things that I now know as an adult that I know far better than I did then as a sixth grade boy was the uh, internal crucifixion of both of my parents, but I think most especially of my mother, the crucifixion of losing a child, especially your daughter that had been quite sick, the crucifixion of then having to go on to take care of your other four children the next day after the funeral, making lunches and getting you off to school and fixing your socks and and, and cooking meals. She had to continue to do that even in the midst of what had to be a blinding, searing grief. Now, there is a spirituality in there that somebody probably has developed, but it is a spirituality that definitely needs to be developed. And I think this is very related to this whole, it's in other words, one of Balthazar's emphases as well, wasn't just that holiness resides in the religious orders. And so many of the female mystics we're talking about were in religious orders. I think there's a lot of mothers out there who are mystics uh, and can bring a tremendous insight into the churches. But, and after all, I think Balthazar agreed with that, which is why, I mean, Adrienne von Speer just, you know, was a lay woman. Mm-hmm. You know, she was, she was not in a religious order. And uh, so anyway, that's, I'm off topic, but well, there you go. I'm glad you brought her up to the extent that, I mean, a lot of people don't know her life in the relationship. She was a mother. Yes. She, she had she suffered several miscarriages, lost a beloved husband, remarried, uh, yeah. was a doctor. That was her primary. What she felt a part of her vocation was to help with others. And she would see numerous patients, bringing them, even the poor, into her home to care for them because that was yeah. what she saw was important. The mystical writings of, of Adrienne was brought forward after her death. No one in her yeah. family, most people in town didn't even realize some of the experiences that she was having because she was so busy working. Yeah. And 
caring for the family. Which is why Balthazar thought it was very important for him to catalog all this stuff. Yeah, she wasn't going to. Yeah, I mean, she. One time, she said to him, "You know, th- your problem is you think too much." You know, and <laughs> he probably did. She only spent yeah. twenty minutes with him. The rest of her, yeah. she would go in, have the conversation with him, and then leave because this is what it looks like. This is how we live out those days in the in the sufferings and the in the care of others. The the thing about Adrienne and what Balthazar helped her to do even more especially when you talk about after she received the graces that came from receiving communion and confession and so many other things in her entrance in the church was scripture. Those are her finest books are the ones that reflect on the scriptures and that encounter with the logos and that Marian reception is essentially allowing the logos, the word to receive it like Mary and let it plant And that's the origin of your response. And so if it comes in just through the head, we learn so much. But as Pope Benedict, you know, was so famously heard by so many when he said, you have to make the journey from the head to the heart if you're not, if it's not planning. And I think that's where a lot of people don't appreciate Balthazar. Christ is the sole font of grace. He is the sole font of salvation. He is the sole mediator between God and man. But as I said earlier, with regard to the aesthetic, that has to be received. And one of the graces that Christ has provided for us in his economy of salvation is the grace of his mother's subjectivity, so that we can receive this word as she did with her fiat at the Annunciation. Uh, I love to meditate on the fact, Ratzinger brings this out, really, that The ultimate foundation for the doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception that she was conceived without sin is precisely that she had to be formed in such a way that she could offer a perfect yes to God, right? God had made numerous overtures to Israel, but because of Israel's sin, he could not enter fully into Israel. And that would have been true for us as well. Before he was going to enter into time and history, as a human being, to be born of a woman. He wanted it to be done in a way with full and a a full yes, a complete yes, an unequivocal yes, untainted by sin. And that's why she had to be sinless. That's why. In order for her consent to be perfect. And it is that perfected consent, her yes, her fiat, that is what I mean by what Balthazar means, Adrienne means by Marian subjectivity. Be it done unto me, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. That should be on our lips every single day and doesn't replace Christ as the sole savior of the human race, but it does create within us the conditions of grace, the conditions of reception that we need. And I think Adrienne, this, is, this was her driving her driving idea. I think Balthazar developed his ideas based on hers. Unfortunately, there is a deep misunderstanding out there brought forward by some people of the actual relationship between Balthazar and Adrienne. Actually, it can be characterized as a true misrepresentation. And to that effect, there also seems by those who claim to know a total lack of understanding concerning the origins of their teachings. 
And because they don't understand that very central point of what you just spoke about the receptivity or whatever that might be that they disagree with him about theologically, then they, in a very sad, last flailing attempt, say in a very cartoonish, very superficial way, well, look at their relationship. There's something weird about that. And, and so now we have to discount what he says, or they just totally try to dismiss him with such a sad attack to his character and quite honestly to hers. Well, the, the criticism of Balthazar coming from, it used to come from the left. I remember one of the things when I was at Fordham, I said, I, I met resistance at Ford. It's interesting because all of the English translations of Balthazar were through Ignatius Press, Joe Fessio, who was a Jesuit, Fordham's Jesuit. And of course, so then I was stained with the stigma. I mean, Balthazar was well known to support Humanae Vitae. He was well known to oppose women's ordination. And so, and his cause was being taken up by all of these conservative types. And so the initial resistance to Balthazar came from liberal Ranarian types who viewed this guy as this right-wing reactionary interloper uh, being made use of by conservatives. And that's why uh, I met great opposition at, at Fordham. They, did, they just didn't understand why I would want to throw my theological career away by devoted it to this, to this reactionary Gnostic, which is what they thought Balthazar was. But now that's completely changed. And you find even a lot of liberals that say, hey, wait a minute, this Balthazar guy is actually really interesting. Uh, I've even seen feminist theologians who despise his, sec, you know, his male, female, all that stuff in the, in the Trinity. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they love some aspects of his thought. But now the criticism is all coming from the right wing. And I love your word, what you said, cartoonish. It's an extremely cartoonish caricature. And the reason for that, I am certain, is that none of them have actually read either Adrienne or Balthazar or even good secondary literature on Balthazar, say the book by Ed Oakes and so on. Mm -hmm. None of them have read any of this. All they are doing are, is repeating certain talking points that, had they, that are out there in the blogosphere Here's what Balthazar teaches. And, it, and you can tell that these are talking points by the fact that they all fixate, all of them, all of them, on dare we hope that all men be saved. And, and they fixate on his relationship with Adrienne. And they really fixate on the Adrienne relationship because they think, aha, he wrote that introduction to the book in France on the tarot cars, that sociologist Frenchman that Balthazar sort of endorsed. So he's into tarot cars. He's into this bizarre Protestant mystic uh, and so on, her weirdo writings. And then he believes everyone goes to heaven. So, and it is invariable when they talk about Balthazar, they drag out all these points. I mean, they described Balthazar as a man who followed the teachings of a, of a debunked mystic who has debunked Adria? John Paul certainly was not aware of her being debunked when he held a whole conference in Rome on, on Adria and Bonspire. Uh, but this is back to my point about talking points. They then went on to say that Balthazar, a raving lunatic who took his cues from a debunked mystic and the writings of a self-inflated Protestant minister. A self-inflated Protestant minister he must have been talking about Karl Barth, the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century. A self-inflated 
Protestant minister. Now, I'm not, I don't want to get too far off topic, but the fact is this is an example of what you mean by cartoonish. Mm -hmm. This is so uncharitable as well as being cartoonish and so ignorant that you begin to wonder about the agenda that is underneath all of it. The problem becomes, and it, I don't know if we appreciate this, that when you begin to tear apart Balthazar, which is, you know, as you said, it's kind of shocking because there's his work is so incredibly deep and it's like an ocean yes. of understanding. You also, in a very real way, begin to tear apart. It's like a zipper. Then you begin to tear apart Benedict the Sixteenth, Joseph Ratzinger, yes. and then you begin. Oh, what? Who's next? It's John Paul, John Paul. Carol Wattia yeah. and his teachings. And it's just like an unzipper, and you begin. And what's next? Vatican II. Vatican II. Vatican II. Exactly. And so you are a de facto sede vacantist at that point. Yeah, and you forget that John Paul and Benedict—they're the the authors, the originators of the Catholic Catechism. These are not yes. just loony guys who are trying to to move the church in a different direction. You know, these are important foundations. For the church. Well, which is why I say it's, it's a stupid agenda, but it's also a, a, a dangerous agenda because it's playing in the sandbox of apostasy and schism. Because as you said, I love your zipper analogy. They keep, they, they can't, I've blogged on this. They can't follow the internal logic of their own argument. And, it, and the internal contradiction in their argument is that they're going to use the authority of past magisterial statements in order to condemn modern magisterial statements as heretical. And yet, why quote ancient magisterial statements if the magisterium can be so hopelessly wrong? If an entire ecumenical council, Vatican II, is just from top to bottom horrible, heretical, it needs to be suppressed. If Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict were all just Modernist popes, God forbid we even talk about Pope Francis, who they think is an apostate idolater. What are you left with? You are left with saying that somehow, some way, the church has fallen into apostasy since the death of Pius XII. Some would go further than that, pulling back that zipper. Some see the seeds of modernism even in Pius XII, in encyclicals like Divino Aflante Spiritu, Mystici Corporis Christi. You already see the beginnings of the liturgical reform, ecclesiological reform. So they want to go back. Oh, we got to go back to the syllabus of errors of Pius X. So all of a sudden, the, ch the entire church of the 20th century is now frozen out of the Holy Spirit. There's an internal contradiction there that they never, ever address because they can't. Because as soon as they do, then they have to admit, I am in schism. I am a schismatic. I'm right up there with the old Catholics who walked out after Vatican I. I'm right up there with the SSPX. But they don't have the courage to say that. And, and they lose clickbait money on YouTube if they say that. So I think that's another reason why they don't say it. And really, going back to Balthazar, when you read him, all you hear is the gift of beauty. And the beauty that's found when you bring it all the way down, it, when he talks about art and he talks about music, ultimately originates in the heart of one from a person 
artist. Yes, then, yes, yes. And that origin ultimately is Christ. It's the logos. And I'm talking about not a, a superficial understanding of scripture. God forbid I, you know, be misinterpreted in that. But sacred scripture, there's a mysterious depth that divine communication that is being expressed to us that goes beyond mere words on a page or type mm-hmm. on a page. It goes to the very heart. And when you read Balthazar, he is so steeped in that scripture, in the word, that he's seeing it. It's no longer the words on a page. Again, it, he's seeing it in everything he's looking at in the world. I think he has become one with the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, in, in a way, that's why, uh, you know, I think it was De Lubach who said that talking with Balthazar was like talking to a modern church father. Mm-hmm. Because he was so steeped in scripture as the fathers were, it, it framed everything about, about his theology. He was so immersed in it. I mean, uh, stories are told, for example, of Mozart being able to essentially sit down and, and write an entire symphony without many corrections, sit down and write the whole symphony because it was already there in completion, in its totality, in his head. In other words, he had become one with his music. He had become one with the beauty and the vision that he was trying to put on paper. And I think this is a perfect analogy for Balthazar as well. He is so immersed in the scriptures and so at one with them that they form this cohesive gestalt in his mind that is the lens through which then he views absolutely everything. Read his trilogy, read Love Alone, and see how many scriptural references and quotations there are. And by the way, that is completely different from the old neo-scholastic way of doing theology, mm-hmm. where scripture was only brought in as a proof text, all right, as a proof text for the syllogism you've just proven this or that doctrine. It didn't form or frame the gestalt of the theology itself. You see, that's the, the power of that. And that's what, if and you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the power of what he saw in Therese. That she oh, could take yes. she, the, a woman who uh, didn't even, a girl who didn't even have the scriptures with her were given scraps of paper that they compiled in their little booklets for the Carmelites. Yeah. She so took it all in and it she made it just come alive in, yes. in just these beautiful ways that, I mean, she, for him, and he saw that again, too. I mean, he would write in other works about the woman from Calcutta. He writes about the little nun from Calcutta. Before she became <laughs> so popular with everybody, yeah, else, yeah. You know, Mother Teresa. Yeah. It was a living scripture. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, Balthazar develops the old Alexandrian theology of the corpus triforme, the, the, the idea that the word is incarnated in three modalities. In its primary modality, revelation as such is the incarnation of the word in Christ, the hypostatic union. That is revelation as such. That's the primary incarnation. The scriptures then represent a secondary incarnation of the word, but in the form of a privileged witness to the primary word. Scripture is not the word as such. It is a witness to the word in a privileged way. Mm. Then, of course, the third enfleshment of the word is in the sacraments and in the church, which is uh, 
even a little below scripture then. It's not quite as privileged. Uh, but nevertheless, there's those three incarnations of the word. So what I want to point out here, therefore, is that Balthazar's attitude towards the scriptures is exactly what it should be. The scriptures are not an end in themselves. They are a pointer to Christ. And Balthazar simply had this gift. What was the gestalt in his mind that, that allowed him to see the scriptures so cohesively? It was Christ. And so there was a oneness between Balthazar's mysticism, his Christocentrism, and his in taking in of the scriptures themselves. Everything he read in scripture fit into his mind in that Christological matrix. And when it comes out then on paper, it is breathtaking in its cohesiveness. He reads the scriptures as you should, as a witness to the Christ event from Genesis to Revelation. And I think that's the key to understanding why it just framed him inside and out. We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. This concludes part two of our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp discussing Hansers von Balthasar's Love Alone is Credible. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many other episodes of this particular series, visit bonbalthazar.com. There, too, you can also access numerous audio excerpts from this particular book, along with others from the Balthazar Library. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will consider subscribing to this particular podcast and liking it on whatever platform you may be hearing it on. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about bonbalthazar.com and join us for the next episode of Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. <music>